You may not realize this, but we have spent six weeks now thinking through what it means to be a disciple, and we do have a few more weeks to go. As you have heard over and over again, we've been using this book, Disciple Like Jesus, as our guide. Or Some people throughout our Mississippi conference are using this book. Our leadership at this church has read it. The author is coming to Mississippi, hosted by our conference for a one-day conference in October. And you can find information about that in your bulletin if you would like to attend. And this Wednesday, if you have been reading through the book, we will meet after dinner to look at chapters 1 through 4. But we've covered a lot, a lot in six weeks, beginning with this discussion about discipleship as a life-consuming Jesus, bit by bit, story by story, conversation by conversation, prayer by prayer, Sunday by Sunday, moment by moment. We said that discipleship can look like knowing your neighbor's name. We've talked about how discipleship is about our behaviors and not adding one more thing to our calendar. That it's about being open and aware for how we can intentionally reflect the life and love of Jesus just as we go about our day. How we're present in our neighborhoods and our communities. That as disciples of Jesus Christ, as members of the body of Christ, that we're called to a life of worship. We believe that this one hour each week has the power to shape all the other hours. We've named that discipleship is about hospitality. And finally, talked about discipleship as this process of becoming. We are lifelong learners and followers of Jesus striving to become more like Jesus, living as we sing each week, living to be more like Jesus, opening ourselves up to God as we practice spiritual disciplines, as we engage in the scriptures, we grow up, continuing the process of becoming, living to be more like Jesus. Today, though, we're going to jump way back in the story. I'm not sharing a story of Jesus or of the early disciples. No, we're jumping back to the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. The story of Abraham and Sarah, it's the story of faithful individuals who are called to take that next faithful step. And those next steps, well, they appear to be for the purpose of seeing others. But before I read Genesis 12, I just want to kind of give you a picture of how we get to Abraham, how we get to Genesis 12 and the story of Abraham and Sarah to begin with. Genesis can basically be broken down into two parts. You've got chapters 1 through 11, and then Genesis 12 and beyond. Beginning with chapter 12, we have God working through particular persons, Abraham and Sarah, who become a people, the nation of Israel. But those first 11 chapters, Genesis 1 through 11, while we do have stories of individuals, there isn't really this streamlined connection like the one that happens from Genesis 12. Now, you can find those genealogies, but instead, what we have are origin stories, 
stories about beginnings. Creation, the beginnings of sin and evil, the beginnings of families, of work, of envy, of brokenness, even the beginnings of civilization, all told within these 11 chapters. As one commentary said, Genesis moves from the mourning of the universe to the ordering of families and nations to the birthing of the fathers and mothers of Israel. It's a mix of a human story and God's story. It contains narrative after narrative, genealogy after genealogy. In fact, if you want to go count, there's 10 genealogies in Genesis. Six of those are found in chapters 1 through 11. Those origin, beginning stories. And what's interesting to me is that God is the subject of more activity than any other character in Genesis 1 through 11. And some of that activity is a little hard for us to take. God creates, blesses, gives laws, judges, grieves, saves, elects, promises, makes covenants, provides counsel, protects, confers responsibility to human beings, and holds them accountable all in the first 11 chapters. These 11 chapters, the beginnings of our story of faith, they give us a picture of God and God's core character, God's way of relating to the world, a God who is active in the world. So, when we get to Genesis 12, and the call of Abraham and Sarah, what we find is that Abraham is called to take those next faithful steps into a world in which God is already deeply engaged. And the call that God places on Abraham, well, it says something about God's desire for that world. I'm going to be reading from Genesis 12. Verses 1 through 9. And as we prepare to hear God's word this day, let us pray. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your words be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may your words be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. Reading from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Now, I'm going to remind you before I read um, or tell you, um, Abraham is not, like, not yet Abraham yet. He's just Abram, but I'm talking about the same person. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarah and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. 
From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on his west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Najib. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Lewis Center for Church Leadership has an article entitled, So That, Two Powerful Words for Mission Results. The author says that the church often invests a great deal of energy in activities without ever asking how they relate to what God is calling the church to accomplish. That we get preoccupied with what we are doing and we lose sight of why we're doing it. The article goes on to say that adding that so that can change the entire focus. When the beginning stories of our faith make that shift from those origin stories to God calling and working through particular persons, Abraham and Sarah, who become a people, the nation of Israel, God includes a so that, a powerful statement, so that we never forget what our why is. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. Jesus, of course, echoes this. What does it mean to be a person of faith, a disciple of Jesus Christ? This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus is asked? Love God, so that you may love your neighbor. That's Dawn's paraphrase. You've noticed that we are once again in confirmation, moving through the history, theology, doctrine of the United Methodist Church with another group of young people so that they may confirm their faith, profess their faith openly, decide if this church family is one they wish to join. We've got a different topic each Sunday night to cover, but basically what we are really covering each week is that core theology that makes the United Methodist Church distinctive. Um, and I joke a lot with them and say that if you take nothing else away, I hope you at least take this away. Personal holiness and social holiness. Love God, love a neighbor. In fact, I apparently say it so much throughout confirmation that um, whenever I ask my oldest two kids anything about confirmation, no matter what I ask, they usually say personal holiness and social holiness. For myself, I have found a home in United Methodism and kept it per precisely because it holds these two together. It isn't just about my personal faith. Me loving God. And it isn't just about me serving others. Loving neighbor. It's about both. At the same time. Always and continually. Love God. 
so that we may love our neighbor. Works of piety, works of mercy. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. My faith, my call as a disciple of Jesus Christ is not something that is just between me and God. It's about a life consuming Jesus, being consumed by Jesus, so that our world is in turn consumed by a people shaped by a God of liberation, of provision, of love and grace. It's about blessing the world. In the letter to the Romans, Paul is working through what this original call of Abraham that led to the people of Israel means in light of Christ. In Christ, how does this blessing of the world thing look? Well, one, it looks like extending the table, making space for everyone. But for Paul, life in Christ also looks like this. And we've already heard it once, but I am going to read it again from a different version. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians. Be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies, no cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. Now that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot to lift. Um, that's a lot to claim to be able to do. And I'll be the first to say that I fail miserably at this constantly. But I do believe deeply in this beautiful dream that God has cast before us and invites us to enter. I believe deeply in the life of Jesus and what we learn from his life, his teachings, his example, his sacrificial servanthood. I believe deeply that every day God's kingdom is lived and experienced among us in small and in big ways. I do not and cannot claim to know or practice all of this well, 
but I repeat what I have shared before as we think about this life of discipleship. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we keep on keeping on. We keep learning. We keep praying. We keep serving. We keep showing up. We keep taking steps forward one day at a time. We keep on keeping on, trusting that the Holy Spirit is holding us and molding us and opening us up to see the one in need. To see the one in need of blessing. Opening us up to see that next faithful step. As disciples of Jesus Christ, may it be so. Amen.